Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Stuart Widdison, Manager of Odyssey and Investment Trust, and Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle. The past couple of months have not been kind to equity income investors, with various companies cutting or postponing their dividends. And things don't look like they're getting any better, with financial services group Link Asset Services predicting that this year, UK dividends could fall anything between 27 and a whopping 51%. Dave, you've been following this. So what can investors who relied on UK equity income payments do about this? Hi, Leonora. Yeah, as you said, it is looking quite grim. I mean, generally, you can uh, try and look further afield for your income. Um, So we've previously discussed some areas in the investment trust space that might tide you over. But it's also perhaps worth considering um, what used to be seen as a more reliable source of income, which is um, the bond market, um, in particular corporate bonds. So what sort of yields can you get on bonds? Yeah, it's interesting. So they've definitely looked much more attractive in you know recent times following the sell-off. So just to give you one example, if you look at the um, US high yield market, um, in sterling terms before the sell-off, you were getting an average yield of something like 5%. When the sell-off hits and bonds, you know, did not escape this volatility, you saw yields, which move inversely to prices, um, shoot up. You saw them move up to around 12% mark, um, which obviously is huge. Those yields have since come back um, as prices have recovered, um, but they've still looked much more attractive. So even at the end of April, um, if you're looking at US higher yields, um, there were yields in excess of 7% um, on average. Um, as one analyst was putting it, bonds have almost returned to their traditional role as a source of income. This all sounds good, but have all of the relatively recent problems of bonds gone? Um, and have any new ones emerged? <laughs> yeah, that is the problem. So I would say, um, as you alluded to, there are some new problems and some of the old issues with bonds uh, remain. So, uh, for example, if you look at the investment grade bond market, so that's the kind of higher quality um, end of corporate bonds, those bonds look much cheaper than they did. So they may be good from a total return perspective, but they're not really going to give you um, enough yields to, for example, replace um, UK equity income. So that really is a, a bonus, if anything, but not really a good income stream. Um, Then if you look to areas um, that will give you a better income like high yield or emerging market debt, um, you're, as before, you're basically taking greater risks, almost potentially equity-like risk in order to try and get this income. And some interesting recent problems have been um, in the high yield markets. There are lots of issues, obviously, in the energy space with the oil price you know, whipsawing around, the US high yield market is particularly exposed to those problems. If you look at emerging market debt, which also offers some attractive yields, um, that could be especially volatile, perhaps even more volatile than it normally is, as um, some of the emerging market countries struggle to deal with the current crisis that's going on. Um, And then there are perhaps... uh, some other kind of old and new problems. Um, So one old problem that came to light during the sell-off is the fact that corporate bonds um, can be very illiquid, very hard to trade um, when markets are getting stressed. And that certainly was the case in March. 
that could prove problems for bond funds in terms of liquidity if investors want to remove their money at some point. And then uh, another problem that could emerge is around inflation and interest rates. Um, so once the crisis is over, um, the huge fiscal stimulus that we've seen around the world could end up resulting in higher inflation. That could end up forcing central banks to raise rates. And higher rates are generally very damaging um, for bond prices. Okay, so not a problem for you to income. But <laughs> if you prepared to tolerate these risks, uh, what would be the best way to get exposure to bonds? Yeah, so if you do want to take the plunge, um, and obviously there are lots of things to consider when making that decision, um, you do need to be really selective. Um, so this is an area where it's arguably much better to be um, using active funds than something like a tracker. One area we've looked at before and again stands out is the strategic bond sector. Um, these are bonds that can invest anywhere in the fixed income universe. Um, that means they can be really flexible. Um, they can move around depending on their view of the market. And they could, for example, um, not all the funds do this, but some do. They could have some exposure to the riskier, higher yielding parts of the bond market, like high yield. Um, but then offset this with more defensive holdings. Uh, one fund we've been looking at um, is 24 Dynamic Bonds. Um, that doesn't yield as much as some of the other funds in the sector. It has a yield of around 3.9% at the end of March, but it's really well diversified and it looks like it could do a good job of um, sort of protecting you from some of the volatility we may see again in future. For example, it has exposure to emerging market debt, um, it has exposure to high yield bonds in the US and Europe, but it's also got allocations to government bonds, asset-backed securities, uh, bank debts, and even a small amount of investment-grade debt. So it's really well-diversified fund. Okay. I mean, strategic bond funds sound like a great option. So, I mean, are they the only way you should to get exposed to debt? They're a very good option, uh, but you could also use a fund dedicated to um, some of these high-yielding areas, such as emerging market debt or high-yield. But if you are considering these funds um, we would definitely caution you to take a conservative approach, um, really carefully analyse the funds and, yeah, just think long and hard about what you invest in. One fund that we've highlighted um, is Royal London Short Duration Global High Yield Bond because it can take a bit more of a measured approach. So, as the name suggests, it has a um, shorter duration. So, that means it has less sensitivity to interest rate changes. And it also has shown a bit of a kind of flexible approach, which could um, could benefit investors. For example, um, at the end of March, it actually had some small allocations to government bonds, which could potentially offset you know, volatility in the markets. Okay, thank you, Dave. And see this week's big theme in the fund section for Dave's full list of suggestions on bond funds for income. Today's guest, Stuart Riddison, is maybe best known for his time running Strategic Equity Capital, a UK smaller company's investment trust with which he delivered strong returns. But in 2017, Stuart founded Odyssey and Capital, and in 2018, he launched Odyssey and Investment Trust, which also focuses on UK-listed smaller companies. Stuart, Odyssey and Investment Trust only has 19 holdings, 
mainly in smaller companies. And at the end of March, the 10 largest ones accounted for over 70% of its assets. This should be a recipe for volatility, especially in shopping markets. But over the past year, the trust has fallen considerably less than smaller companies' indices. And certainly for me, surprisingly, the FTSE All Share Index of larger companies. How is this possible? I think there's a number of factors, uh, uh, Leonora. I think the first main one is how we decide to select stocks. And our investment approach, uh, we believe, is not better or worse than anybody else. It's just different. The thing that we'll probably come and talk to uh, is our is our roots and our thinking in private equity. That means we have a different approach to valuation than our, we think, the broader market. We care about the absolute value of companies we're buying, not just the relative performance of those stocks. Secondly, um, we, we've always run the, the trust with a conservative balance sheet. And during my time at Strategic Equity Capital, Capital we always ran with net cash as well. You know, as you're aware, many investment trusts in the sector are actually geared, and that exacerbates volatility in markets. I think the third factor is really stock-specific factors. We're very, very selective about the types of companies we want to invest in and the attributes of those companies, including their balance sheets. And to date, we've had none of our portfolio companies need to come to the market and raise equity. And that's a good example of, 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 of really the strength of their balance sheets to weather difficult positions. I think the, the final thing is, is really about the sectors we tend to invest in as well, which has benefited us. Uh, we don't invest in resource companies uh, such as oil and gas, which have been hit quite badly um, given what's happened in you know, to commodity prices. And also, we have very little exposure to the consumer and retail sector and the leisure sector, uh, which has also um, been hit disproportionately badly. So I think it's a whole bunch of factors. Um, when we when we launched the investment, uh, the Edison Investment Trust, we we said to our investors at the time. You know, you, you can't plan for the future. You can't plan your performance. But in the past, we believe we've tended to get most of our outperformance in down and sideways. And in return for that, we've tended to lag a bit when markets have got very excited. And that's absolutely been the case in the last two years as well. So, so it's pleasing that the result we thought that would uh, that we'd have has has seemed to be um, what's happened. Okay, I mean, quite a range of factors, like you said. So um, I guess I'll mm. come to one by one. But first of all, just turning to the cash. At the end of March, you had 10% in cash. I mean, was it this high throughout um, the early parts of the year when markets started tanking? And I suppose even more personally, have you still got 10% in cash? Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, we went into the year about 8% in cash in the portfolio, and we felt very hard. Uh, post the election um, result at the end of, uh, sorry, in the middle of December. And when markets ran very hard, it was also a period when liquidity was very poor. There's very little institutional buying or selling in the second part of December. And we were nervous about valuations on a number of our holdings. So actually in January and early February, because we are focused on absolute values of companies, we actually took money off the table um, and, uh, and sold down a number of our holdings that had done well. On top of that, in uh, very early March, we had a bid uh, for a portfolio company called Huntsworth uh, from a U.S. private equity house. The bid was made at a fifth the prevailing share price, and that was a useful top-up to the NAV and also realised a holding. So, if you take it, if you include that in the cash position, we actually had about 16% at the end of March. When the market 
when it was obvious through March that things were getting difficult, we initially stopped making any new purchases. Um, and then we, we realized a couple of investments that had held up very well and we felt were probably going to be impacted. Looking for a couple of bargains and we made three small new investments um, in March. But it was very much on a one-in, one-out basis. So we were at the end of the period. Um, you know, we, we were very much of the view but it was very unlikely we were going to see a sudden and, and material snap back to, to where markets had been before. Because I think we we felt at the time that the nature of the coronavirus and the simultaneous supply and demand shock meant that there were very few companies that were going to be immune from some sort of disruption. So we always tend to err on the side of caution rather than being uh, uh, fully optimistic of quick recoveries. Okay. Um, Stuart, you said you deployed cash into three new investments in March. Um, what were these? So we've disclosed one of the new investments we made in March, which was a company called Clinogen. Clinogen was exactly the type of investment that we'd like to make um, because it's a it's not a cyclical company, um, but it had a, a actually it probably had more debt on than the market was comfortable with. Um, it's a company I've known for a very long time. I originally invested in it in 2014. And it has very, you know, its earnings are pretty stable. However, its share price rating is very volatile. Um, you know, it's traded at between a P of nine and a P of 23 over the last seven years. I'm not all into it in, uh, at a P of less than seven because we felt the market had, had really got very over-concerned about the debt. Um, it's subsequently done very well for us in April, um, but we still think there's a reasonable amount more to go for in it. Um, the other small investments were were slightly more cyclical companies, and we can talk about the nature of those a bit, probably a bit later. Okay. Now you said another factor in, um, I suppose, your, your performance over the past year was the fact that you take a private style approach to investing. What do you mean by this? And I mean, how does it differ from a conventional investment process in selecting listed equities? So, so many of our broader peer group are focused on beating an index in the sh in the short term, um, regardless of of what that's doing to absolute asset prices. We come at it from a very different angle. Many many of us have worked in private equity for for, for many years, and private equity about indices. It just wants to make it make a positive return, and that's really what we're focused on. Um, we target making money out of every investment, making a positive return over a five year period. Um, and we're looking to double our money every five years, which, which is equivalent to 15% annualized return. As a result of that, um, it leads us to invest in a whole different, you know, basically a, a, a much smaller subset of the market than we could invest in. And we have a very, very concentrated portfolio, very similar to a PE house. On, in, a, in a normal, three to four, maybe five investments a year. And we're looking for companies with certain characteristics where they're a common theme. We call them quality, value, um, and opportunities for engagement, sort of QVE. Um, a lot of fund managers say they look for quality. We're very specific about the factors we're looking for. Um, can a company make 10% operating margin? Is it a market leader? Does it do something that's difficult to replicate? Um, would we conceptually want to own the whole business? Because if markets close down and, and there's no liquidity, you might not be able to sell anyway. And finally, is it good enough company that actually maybe one day somebody else would like to buy it if the, the stock market continues to misprice it. 
in terms of the valuation, we like uh, looking for companies that we think we can buy at a, a discount to today's value. And we're not looking just at the P ratio. We'll be looking at whether a company uh, would be worth more to a trade bidder um, or, a co- or a private equity investor. And we've got lots of ways we can triangulate that in a network you know, where companies might have some hidden value. The second thing that company will change over the next five years we look at basically how the sales will grow, how the margins will improve by the management improving the business. Um, thirdly, the companies can pay cash, uh, generate cash to pay down debt. And finally, whether or not their rating goes up. And we want to find companies with as many ways as possible that they can grow their value over the next five years. As a result of these factors, there's whole swathes of the market we don't invest in. We don't invest in companies that don't make profits or cash. Um, and we don't invest in uh, faith stocks or, or, or belief stocks where people think they're going to find, I don't know, a cure for cancer. And, and if it happens, it's great. And if it doesn't happen, it's disastrous. We're not looking for those situations at all. We'd be very happy with a steady 15% a year return. So it's a whole bunch of things we look for. Okay. Now, you, um, I think you mentioned that you look for companies that you think are mispriced and have the potential to be turned around. So how do you establish uh, whether this is the case? We're not looking to try and turn around lost causes uh, of companies that have got deep structural problems, the market's moving away from them or declining. We ideally want to try and find companies that are good but could be doing a lot better. Think of uh, buying a flat that needs a bit of doing up, you know, maybe needs a new bathroom, maybe needs a new kitchen and repainting. We're not looking to go and buy a house that needs underpinning and uh, basically half the walls repaired uh, that might fall down. So we look at various things. Uh, We look at a company's uh, profit margins, and then we compare that to their best-in-class competitors. And then we run other metrics such as profits and sales per employee, return on capital employed, the cash conversion, uh, the amount of money they've got in working capital and inventories, lots of different metrics to get a holistic picture of, of whether or not we think the company could be doing things better. We also have a panel of industry advisors who've run and improved businesses over many years who help us with that assessment. And meet all the management teams and go and do site visits. And by asking lots of specific questions, you can get a very clear view of whether or not a company could and should be doing better. We particularly like companies that in the past have done acquisitions, but maybe haven't integrated those acquisitions or got full value out of them. Um, you know, we've got one investment in our portfolio that had not integrated its purchasing across 15 different business units. And just by having a single system to look at the price it paid for every piece of uh, equipment across those 15 companies, it could save um, buying costs on its components by 30% so Are just you by improving which that company is probably not in the moment because it's commercially sensitive to that company but it, it gives you a really good example of how businesses can just generate higher profits by being more efficient and i think that's that's particularly something we really like because uh, you know no one could have forecast what's happened over you know the last few weeks yes in a business that's not profit maximizing management teams can actually improve their profitability even in bad markets. Okay. I mean, what would be an example, um, certainly in the past, of when you got this wrong? I mean, when weren't you able to turn around a company that one of your funds invested in? 
Yeah. So again, it's it's not as as the fund managers improving it. It would be the management teams. I think the the sectors that we found this most difficult in are consumer, um, and as a result of that, we don't invest in the consumer sector anymore. It's very difficult to change consumer behaviour, and the consumers are quite fickle. You know, revitalising old brands is very difficult. The second area is is any company that is in a structural declining sector. So in the past, um, I've invested in companies in the B2C media space and newspapers. Um, Theoretically, they could make lots of savings, um, but ultimately the readership is declining so quickly that even if you're running, you're running very hard to go backwards at a slower rate than you would do otherwise. So again, we don't invest in companies that are in some a, a structurally unattractive market that's declining. Okay. Now, um, part of your private equity approach is to engage in companies rather than just buy their shares. I mean, how do you do this? What do you mean by this? And um, you know, when you know, what 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 exactly are you trying to achieve when you do it? So our ethos is to really. Um, sell a, sell one of our investments when it's in a much better state than when we invested and actually be a co-owner of that company through a period of positive change. So we identify, we talked about improvement potential, we identify companies where a potential investment could improve before we invest and then start to engage once, once we're an investor. Historically, we focus much more on profitability, operational performance, governance, such as, you know, does it have the right number of non-executives? Is the remuneration scheme appropriate? We've also done a reasonable amount of work on investor relations with our portfolio companies because uh, quite often their investor relations is not particularly sophisticated. And if a company markets itself better, it tends to have a higher rating. More recently, um, due to, uh, you know, our own views of how things are changing and also we're also um, including environmental and social uh, sustainability factors as well. I know we're pretty pragmatic with small companies because they're more resource constrained. And our major focus is understanding whether or not there is a sustainability agenda, who owns it and how they measure it. In terms of how we engage, it's mainly with the company's executives, its non-executives and other stakeholders and shareholders that have an interest. Uh, we don't use the press. And we want to do everything on a friendly basis where everybody's a winner rather than picking fights with people. Okay. I mean, that's an awful lot of effort you're making, which is absolutely great. But if you're going to make all this effort, uh, why not invest in quoted companies uh, rather than um, listed companies? Well, both Ed and I used to uh, spend, uh, Ed, my, uh, my co-manager and I, we both worked in private equity for many years. There are pluses and minuses of both. However, in private equity, you spend a lot of time actually on the transaction mechanics of buying and selling companies. That can take two or three months to buy or sell a company because it's very liquid. One of the advantages of quoted markets is, um, subject to liquidity, you can go and buy a share tomorrow or, or buy a position tomorrow. So, it's, so you can build a portfolio much more easily. And I think in time basis, you know, if Ed and I were doing unquoted alone, we could probably only make two or three new investments a year. You know, we want a portfolio that's relatively diversified of 20 holdings. It's much more pragmatic to do that in quoted companies. I think the other, the other factor is, um, you know, that there's a lot of money that's been raised in private equity. And at the moment, uh, many valuations in the private equity sector are at a, a premium to public market companies um, and really fueled by cheap. So uh, the competition for assets in private equity is very high. 
and we think we can find assets on the public markets that are trading a discount to where they'd be uh, uh, where a private equity company would pay for them. Okay, so I mean, would you consider adding any encoded companies to Odyssey and Investment Trust? Because there obviously are now a number of investment trusts that are ostensibly, you know, listed equity vehicles, but actually have a sleeve of uncoded holdings. So Scottish Mortgage being a very prominent example. Mm. Uh, it's an excellent question. We are able to. So we are able to hold up to 20% of the net asset value in unquoted. And, but, but we've done that really to um, protect ourselves or provide an opportunity where one of our portfolio companies is taken private by private equity. And we'd actually would like to stay an investor in that company. It's happened to me over the years that a number of our portfolio companies, because of what we do, have been bought by private equity. And we would have investor and stayed in for another five years. We're not going to go and make um, investments in, in companies as a standalone. It's, it's not what we do. Okay. Now, have you changed your investment process at all or the types of investment you target as a result of the coronavirus outbreak and subsequent effect on markets? And I'll pick up in particular a couple of uh, things you mentioned. I mean, you said meeting management and site visits, for example, were important. But presumably that's totally impossible under current lockdown. Meetings are, are, are not possible, but we're big users of video conference. Mm. Phone calls, and, we, and we've been in touch with with our portfolio companies um, twice times, and we, we know these companies very well. Uh, we're not a, you know, we so we tend to make three or four new investments a year. So um, it's not, you know, there's not a particular need to to go and see people in person. In terms of the new investments we're looking at, we already had a pipeline of of companies we'd researched in Met already. Um, that we continue to work through. And you know, Ed, Ed and I have got 30 odd years experience in, in this market. We know most of the companies anyway. So I think um, there's a reason why we can do remotely at the moment. Um, what we can't do is site visits for factories. But actually, you know, we, we can work through that. Um, I think in terms of the, the rest of the process, there's no change. We, we, we have a standard documentation, a standard process to go through to, to approve investments. Um, I think what has changed is maybe the pipeline. We're relatively agnostic about whether we invest in structural growth companies or more cyclical companies. I think if everything's equal, we'd prefer to invest in a structural growth company because why take the risk on the economic cycle? Now, if you look at what's happened over the last six weeks, the cyclical companies have, have been hit much harder, and that's probably where more value is over the long term now. So we're focused more on the recovery situations where um, you know, they're, they're potentially quite a lot of money could be made over the next three to five years as, as they recover. You, um, you plan to increase exposure to cyclicals, um, but... Doesn't this, um, you know, doesn't this increase the risk of investment trust if you, you have more, you know, of your money in these? And especially um, with the fact that, you know, the environment ahead is uncertain. You know, we, we think things are getting better. We don't know what's happening. And I suppose to a certain extent, it, it's a deviation from your core strategy. Well, I think we've always said we'll invest in cyclicals, but... Um, where at certain points in the cycle, you probably don't want to be in cyclicals. Um, there are other points in the cycle where things are very tough, maybe where we are at the moment, where cyclical investments can can make you very, very attractive long-term returns. And we think now is potentially one of those times. Um, so if, 
one of the challenges with structural growth companies at the moment is their valuations haven't changed that much and they're still pricing in things being good and uh, that you know they're on material premiums to the market a number of cyclicals have been trading at times at at very 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 low ratings of what we think their trough profits are and they we think they will recover over the next 3 to 5 years and and you can get disproportionate returns out of them so it might be higher risk but we think the rewards are going to be much higher and compensate for that. We are very selective about what we want to look at in those sectors. We have a short list of seven or eight companies we're looking at, and I suspect we'll probably end up investing in three to five. What we have found is through April, a number of the share prices have recovered, had a bit of a relief rally, and some of them are probably not quite the right price for us to invest in yet. But we are looking, and we expect to capitalize on any market weakness we might see over the next three to six months and become investors in those companies. So I think uh, we're aware that it might add some more risk, but actually at this point in the cycle, it's probably the right thing to do for um, for getting good long-term returns over the next three to five years. Okay. I mean, can you say which these companies are, or at least um, what type of companies they are? Yeah. So these would typically be market leaders in a niche. They'll probably be international companies, that have an element of uh, geographic balance to their revenues, so we're not putting all the bets on. I don't the UK. The you know we don't do house builders. We're not putting our bets on house builders starting to build and sell houses again. We wouldn't do that. These would typically be industrial and business services companies with a good asset base, uh, a, a good tangible uh, backing to their to their business, and companies that have been around for, for very very many years that have seen cycles before and we'll manage through this one. We're particularly focused on market leaders as well. Uh, we think that this, the, the environment we're going through is going to be very similar to the early 1990s recession, where the survivors will take market share, and uh, those companies will come out of, uh, of these difficult few months and, and maybe the next 12, 18 months in a much stronger position. And that's potentially very exciting for us. Because we're buying those companies, we don't we don't normally let people know what we're doing because liquidity might be quite uh, narrow, and we want to make sure for our shareholders we get them the stock at the right price. Okay, and are they in any particular industry or do any you know kind of particular activity? They're working at general industrials and business services companies. Those those are the main focus. We had some industrials exposure coming into this, but it was largely in the defence sector, which, as you can imagine, has been very robust and, and, and held up very, very well. So we're thinking more about more manufacturing businesses and, and business services companies that supply lots of different industries, um, which obviously have been, been hit quite badly given what's happened. Okay. Now, um, I don't need to remind people that the world has completely changed in the past couple of months. So... How much can you now rely on a company's past record or financial metrics, which are obviously backward looking, to try and predict, you know, whether um, an investment is going to be good in the current and future market and economic environment? I think that's an excellent question. Any any earnings forecasts or earnings per share numbers, um, they are... um, the earnings can always be manipulated, so it's not a metric we tend to look at. We focus much more on sales and balance sheet values of companies, and, and that type of analysis works really well in the current situation. Um, the net asset value of, of companies tends to be much less volatile than earnings. Um, and uh, look, a, a really good example of, of 
uh, a bigger company that I've looked at in the past. It's too big for what we'd invest in. Is a company called Spectrus. It's a FTSE 250 company. In 2008, it was very badly hit with other industrials, and there was no way to manage it to to measure the company's valuation on a um, on an earnings basis. However, if if you look at the book value of that company, um, that's much more stable over time. And at the time, it was trading on the lowest price to book it had ever traded on ever. Um, and it was difficult to see how you would lose money on that investment. The second thing to look at then is the balance sheet. How strong is the balance sheet? And will the company recover without having to raise equity? And if so, if you've got anything other than a two to three months investment horizon, you're probably going to make money on that situation. So again, that, that's what we're considering, those types of metrics. We also look at enterprise value to sales. Um, we can estimate you know, to, to, a, to an easy degree what might happen to sales this year. You can look at long-term enterprise to, that, to sales ratios and take a view of, of how the market's valuing that company. And what we're really looking for is, is situations where the market is assuming the sales will never improve in that company, which is a very, very pessimistic scenario given the type of environment we're in. So, so it's lots of different data points, and it's more art than science, um, um, but it, it helps you avoid making obvious mistakes. Okay. I mean, just finally, have you sold any holdings or reduced allocations to any particular area as a result of all the things that are going on? Mm. Well, it might sound counterintuitive, but we did um, sell one investment in, in March uh, and early April. It's uh, a company that provides – it's a not disclosable position. It, it provides um, uh, corporate services to uh, funds and and individuals – typically over very long-term contracts, typically nine to 10 years. So it's a very, very stable business, and its share price and, and rating had held up very, very well through March. And that's the reason we sold it, because it was trading on a, I think, the largest premium it had ever traded on compared to the market, and the market was assuming that it wouldn't have any problems in the future. Now, that's that's a company where it's only right to see its sales decelerate towards later on this year and maybe early next year, just at the time that we felt the market would be excited about recovery stocks and cyclicals. Um, we've made very good money on investment and we've gone to look to redeploy the capital into more interesting situations. We've also had two takeovers as well, um, as in Huntsworth, which we spoke about as well, which which was a good result. Okay, thank you, Stuart. A really interesting insight into your investment process and update on the state of UK smaller companies. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see today's Investors Chronicle or the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for more UK smaller companies, good income investments and the risks and rewards of bonds. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy and enjoy the bank holiday weekend.